0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. All right, Solar Warriors. Today is going to be a fun look inside the inner workings of one of the hot, fast-growing development companies in North America utility-scale solar development. It's going to be really interesting. I have really enjoyed the conversations that I've been having with Miss Emily Wangerman, the Vice President of Business Development for LightSource BP. We go deep into how Emily got into her role at LightSource and how she has grown into an executive in the industry, the intentional and not so intentional decisions that led her down that path. We also take a look at The way her experience at previous firms like PG&E and GE have informed some of the decisions that she now gets to execute on in the marketplace, it's a wide-ranging conversation with someone I find particularly very interesting, and I hope you will too. And of course, if you love this episode, then I suggest you go check out our catalog of over 300 other founder and executive stories and startup advice over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. I promise not to be overly present in your inbox, but we'll notify you when the next one of these amazing interviews comes out. They're every Tuesday and Thursday. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Emily, it has been a long time coming, but I'm really, really excited to be able to invite you once again onto the Suncast platform, this time in the form of an interview. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Nico.
0: You bet. We're going to go into a bit of your background, but for those who are unfamiliar, Emily has been for the last eight plus years, working in power markets and energy policy, both the buy and the sell side of solar storage and distributed energy resources, and has a plethora of experience with utilities, with large corporates, and now with large-scale project development. Emily, you have a background that I feel is particularly interesting to explore. You're an engineer by training. Can you help me understand when you first Began to get exposure to the concept that there was a world of energy markets or renewable energy, even more broadly, or renewable energy, even more narrowly, that piqued your interest. When was that spark of an idea injected into your thought process?
1: Yeah, you're right. I started as an engineer. I was a chemical engineer in psychology out of uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and really, you had two places to go. You could go into oil and gas, or you could go into high tech. And so, looking at semiconductor processing. And so, when I jumped in, you know, I went all in. I was doing deep in the technology processing world. um, You know, doing new technology development, patents, things like that. That took me around the world, and I lived in Malaysia and the Philippines. And that's really where. i started to understand the impact of the importance of changing the overall profile of energy in general and bringing renewable energy out uh, globally and so that was my first exposure to the importance of energy and how different it is when you get into different parts of the world right you know you really don't have an appreciation for how important the grid is in the us because it's just there but when you you know live somewhere like the philippines i think a great example is when we moved into our house in the Philippines, the way that the person that actually uh, interconnected us onto the grid was, he literally was just this random guy. He stopped over and he crawled up the pole and interconnected us. And there was probably another 50 interconnections there. And so it was like, wow, that doesn't seem safe (laughs) and this is crazy that this is the way it's done and you know regularly the power goes out and then you just see people using these really dirty generators and so for me that was the moment in time where I said I want to be part of the global solution of transitioning uh, this dirty industry to a renewable future and so that's when I decided to go back to school. And that's why I went back to grad school at Duke and I studied both business as well as really energy and the environments focusing on energy markets.
0: Yeah, I love uh, that you are uh, a, a blue devil. Uh, for those who are longtime fans, they'll remember an episode that John Bonanno and I did with a friend and mentor of yours, Catherine Reziah, a fellow Light Source alum uh, who also uh, attended Duke. And um, we'll get a little bit later in the story. I'm sure we'll get into how that story reconnected. But first, I want to probe a little bit about grad school. There's a lot of pros and cons about going back to grad school, but generally, I like to understand the intentionality of folks' career change decisions or career path. How much of going back to grad school was specifically directed towards an idea you had about the skills you lacked versus it being a place where you could kind of sit back and decide how do I want to shift my career? Where was the specific driver for grad school?
1: I think it started fundamentally of I was going to the factory every day and I was just a little burned out of being an engineer 24-7 and I wanted to gain the new skills to take me out of the factory and into management and leadership world. So I wanted to kind of excel beyond that that base level of, on the engineering side, I'd moved into leadership positions, but I was looking for ways to continue to grow that skill and, and grow that knowledge. So I was definitely looking for knowledge on the business side, and then when I got there, actually originally only applied to the to the uh, business school, and then I realized that you just need much more knowledge about the industry if you want to be a major player in the energy industry. It's just such a unique industry, you know. It's just complex, and the fact that the best way to engage in it is, you know, you can be in one small part of it and you really don't understand the broader industry. So I decided to go to a second grad school to learn a little bit more of that uh, technology and the expertise. Around the energy markets and around technology, uh, different types of technology as it relates to generation as well as grid design. So that was really helpful for me. So I think I kind of stumbled into it a little bit, but I had the idea that I really wanted to be a leader in the renewable energy industry. And so I knew I needed to at least start with leadership skills. And then when I was there, I really realized that there's a whole other world in this industry you need to learn a lot more about before you can truly make a difference in that.
0: Yeah, and you, like many others before you, uh, Mike Grunot, who's been on the show, and Benoit, who he now works with over at Capital Dynamics, you're a part of a greater fraternity of folks who, in grad school, get a chance to intern at the big General Electric. What some may not realize is that that is a bit of a feeder program into what's known as the General Electric Renewable Energy Leadership Program, or RELP for short. Yet You effectively said no to an option to go to RELP, which for most is kind of the golden ticket, and decided to go west. Tell me about the decisions you were faced with as you were getting out of grad school.
1: So it was a really tough decision. I really enjoyed my internship at the RELP. Uh, Not only were the people really um, amazing, you know, they're very supportive of the program and the internship. It was really well run. And my actual internship project was really interesting. I was actually working on what were the emerging markets for uh, the wind industry. And so that was just a really great mix of strategy and marketing. And it made a big difference. You know, they actually implemented the program that I, that I developed for them to define where the next, you know, next big markets for them. So that was really exciting. You know, I did have the opportunity to get a full-time offer and I was really proud of it. At the end of the day, I had to make the call um, and it was really a combination of a personal decision as well as a professional decision. My husband and I were looking to get back to the Bay Area. I was there um, after undergrad and just loved the San Francisco area and the Bay Area. And so that was a um, big benefit. I ended up going to Pacific Gas and Electric. Additionally, on the professional side, I felt like I had already worked in Intel Corporation for a long time, which is a technology developer, and frankly, GE is as well. And so, you know, I know there's lots of opportunities across GE to do different things. But at the end of the day, it was another product, and I was looking to get more on the side of a broader experience across the energy industry. So, getting experience in the transmission and distribution side, on the generation side, as well as on policymaking, and I felt like I could get more of that at PG&E, particularly because PG&E was one of the drivers. You know, they were one of the first, you know, renewable energy procurement entities. And and so a lot of times really ahead of the industry in setting policy and understanding what was the future of energy. So that's why I went there.
0: At the time that you went to PG&E, did you connect the concept of the core, say, fundamental engineering skills and how they might help you at the utility side to not only integrate your skill set, but to better understand how the overall power structure or power markets work?
1: Yeah, I think that a fundamentally a engineering degree helps you in almost every job. And I know that that sounds biased, but every job that I've had so far, it has really helped me. And it's because fundamentally you learn about a couple of things. You learn about problem solving, and you learn about good project management. And, you know, those two things will take you really, you know, will make you successful in any role that you have. So for me, yes, I think it made me um, a powerful, um, you know, impactful person at the company. You know, at the end of the day, I led a bunch of, you know, across company strategic initiatives, which what did you need for that? You need to be able to think strategically and have good project management. And so for me, those were fundamental um, engineering skills that I brought to the table. And then while you're there, you know, while I was at PGE, I just learned a ton about the industry itself. And so I was just constantly absorbing information from people that had been in the industry for 10, 20, 30 years. And so, you know, what I what I brought to the table was helping move forward some massive strategic initiatives and helping grow the business and change. And you know, change is difficult for big organizations. So being part of that change management and bringing that from, you know, being an engineer, you're constantly changing, you're constantly solving problems, and you have to move really fast in high technology. And that's not exactly, PGE isn't known for moving very fast. And bringing that to the table, I think, made a difference. And then I had the opportunity to just learn from some amazingly smart and, um, you know, very, very knowledgeable people from the industry.
0: I can imagine that some of the things that you take for granted now are skills that were new to you in particular about how the power markets work. By way of PG&E as an, another education platform for you, what are the, some of the things that you're currently doing in energy now that you really began to learn the fundamentals of while in a program management effectively role at PG&E?
1: Yeah, I actually find that every day. I don't realize how much I learned at pg So you know some some examples of that are i was working on the idea california was considering a centralized capacity market and I was working on that and we were working on an across the industry. So we were working with interveners. We were working with the CPUC, with the California ISO, you know, with all, all the IOUs and even the CCAs were engaged. And so it was this incredible example of, I was working with all these leaders that had been talking about capacity markets for a very long time. These people were part of understanding how to deal with the energy crisis as it happened and all these other things. And so I was just absorbing all this knowledge and being part of these discussions and helping drive forward a decision of whether or not we needed a centralized market or not. And we decided We already had an effective capacity market, and it was the bilateral market, you know, with if if you've heard of RA, resource adequacy. And so we didn't need to introduce a whole centralized market because it would have cost billions of dollars, introduced a complexity that wasn't there. And it was this incredible process to be a part of that I almost take for granted now. And yet, you know, a big part of that was benchmarking against other centralized markets. And now in my current role, I work in all those other centralized markets. And so I'm like, oh, I actually already know about this PJM rule because I had to learn about it a decade ago. And so, yeah, it's impressive how much you can learn in such a short period of time, especially when you get into the policy world. And when you get into such big policies like, you know, the capacity market design.
0: I wonder, given the experience that you had in capacity and you mentioned RA resource adequacy. We had an episode uh, with Will from Strata not too long ago talking specifically about how RA is being handled right now in California and what that might mean for the rest of the U.S. I'd, I'd be curious from a current events perspective as a pg alum, what are your thoughts on the recent decision to centralize RA purchasing at the three IOUs instead of letting the, the, the consumer community choice aggregation process be borne out?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I fundamentally have, I think a fairly balanced view of what is the value of centralized capacity markets and the value of IOU procurement because I'm now on the buyer, the buy you know, excuse me, the sell side and before I was on the IOU side. So the short answer is I can see why they made the decision. You know, you have to, at the end of the day, have someone or a provider of last resort responsible for maintaining the reliability of the system and when you start to introduce so many different procurement entities and you know are you really creating efficiencies across a broader system are you ensuring reliability and so when you introduce all those you could either have redundancy or you could be short and you know what happened i think you know what happened with the rolling blackouts with california is a really interesting one some people are blaming renewables And it just wasn't caused by renewables. You know, it was fundamentally caused by the fact that, you know, you've got to regularly update your capacity market rules to manage the new portfolios and all the new players that are coming in. And so, you know, they were really designing it around a peak day, you know, or a peak time period per month. And at the end of the day, when you start to introduce renewables and intermittent intermittent resources and broader portfolios with lots of different players like CCAs, which are not, you know, completely regulated by the CPUC, you just introduce a ton of complexity of how do you actually make sure you're maintaining that reliability and maintaining that reserve margin that you really need. And then fundamentally, the, the last part of that is that you also have to account for cost. And so, you know, if between the CPUC and the CAISO, if the RA actually procured for like there's no risk of blackouts and then then people would be really annoyed about the costs of their bills every day. So so I think, you know, this is a long way to say that like, do I think it's a bad decision to move it to the IOUs procuring i'm not certain but what i will say is it's not like the IOUs really benefit from that procurement decision you know uh, procurement is a pass through for them so it's it's a pass through cost so they're not like making an investment on that it's really more about are you creating efficiency by reducing the complexity of that procurement process and ensuring reliability by because the CPUC can hold them accountable for what they're procuring uh, which is a little bit different regulatory perspective on the other hand you know regulation has to keep up with change and that's always been a challenge you know it takes a little while longer for a regulatory bodies to keep up with change and so I imagine that they'll be they'll continue to be evolving you know, regulation to try to keep up with the changes that come along with competition. So short answer, probably the right call for now until they can figure out how to, you know, better manage a complex process.
0: Yeah. And for those who are swimming in the alphabet soup here, it's second nature for those of us, uh, especially (laughs) if you've worked at PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, uh, or any other utility or any government entity, it's it's pretty commonplace. So IOU is...
1: Investor-owned utility, yes.
0: CPUC is California Public Utility Commission. They're the governing body. Cal ISO is the independent service operator. Is that right?
1: Yeah, independent system operator. System.
0: Yep. See, even even uh, veterans like me can get it wrong. California independent system operator. And they, could you give us like a 20 second uh, thing? I think the Cal ISO is one that, for folks who are predominantly, let's say, in residential, they've heard CPUC, they've heard of rate case rulings and things like that, but Cal ISO might seem like an outlier. Like, what exactly is that?
1: Yeah. So the California ISO is really an independent, well, it's exactly what the name is. It's an independent system operator. So they're responsible for the transmission system and ensuring reliability of the transmission system across California. And then there's also some other participants across the WEC that participate in either the EIM, which is another abbreviation basically the long and the short of it that they're ensuring reliability. They do planning uh, to ensure there's sufficient resources on the grid. They look at the capacity. So they'll say either, you know, depending on which region is, there's actual RTOs, which are regional transmission organizations, which are also across the U.S. All of them are responsible for maintaining system reliability. And so they'll look To see is there sufficient capacity in a forward look? So, capacity basically, and what a capacity market fundamentally is, is ensuring that a resource will be available in the future. And so you're paying them to be available. It's not necessarily for actually producing energy, it's just that they will be available in the event that they're needed. And so that's a big part of California ISO's responsibility is to ensure that there's sufficient reliability and to manage that system, that transmission system. System, ensuring that, you know, the constraints don't become a problem and you don't receive rolling blackouts.
0: Right. Another way that I've heard uh, it explained around understanding the capacity piece and why it makes sense to have these, these services as often referred to as spending reserves is imagine an entire residential community. Cal ISO is not so concerned with how much electricity each home individually uses, but rather did we put in a large enough pipe That if every home turned on all of their water faucets at the same time, we'd actually be able to serve that water to them without constraints. And oh, by the way, where is the water being drawn from? So there's intrastate contracts, there's interstate and intrastate Mm -hmm. contracts. Yeah. And they work with the Western Area Power Authority and other acronym laden organizations that ensure, presumably... That there's enough power and that it can be distributed equitably all the way to the point of final consumption. Let's pull back out maybe to, to 30,000 feet again. That was fun to just better understand capacity markets. As a developer of solar assets, how much of the sort of the business development role is glad handing with property owners versus studying and understanding things like what happens at the Cal ISO and where the regulatory opportunities are? Like, How does that piece fit within the job of a developer?
1: That's a good question. So, I would say LightSource is designed a little bit differently or organizationally set up a little differently than some other developers. Um, my group, the business development team, has really the power markets organization. And so, managing uh, contracts with customers, as well as you know trading from an energy and rec perspective on the short-term and mid-term, as well as long-term basis. And then there's, you know, we also actually do acquisition of projects. And so the acquisition is looking at portfolios and projects and saying, okay, um, other developers have these portfolios. Do these make sense? Can we make the economics work to then sell them off to an offtake or a customer? But when you actually get down to lease negotiations and land negotiations, the good news is for me, I don't have to do that much anymore. Uh, That's really handled by our project development team. But when I started at LightSource, we were a really small company. And so we were doing everything. You know, I was calling landowners. I was calling, you know, real estate agents. I was, and I was also talking to customers and trying to sell deals. So I've had, I've been in the weeds there. I'd say a better use of my time is focused on that power marketing experience because it does bring what I've learned to the table on the business side, as well as on the, you know, the energy side and learning it from PG&E. My day-to-day job is not glad handing uh, landowners. It's actually more talking to customers about what they really want from their solar energy, solar and storage energy experience, and then helping them get it through a combination of our products or going out and buying something from a developer that if I don't have it to meet their needs.
0: I've been wondering, what's your least favorite solar asset management activity? You know, those daily, weekly, sometimes monthly deliverables that you just have to check off the list but can be such a drag. Well, let me tell you how to press the easy button and get going on the work that really matters by automating your invoicing and ticketing and reporting with PowerHub. Focus on the work that you wanna do. Take the boring stuff off your plate with PowerHub. You can go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast to learn more. I've heard time and again from tons of friends who've made the transition from namely PG&E, but many different utilities, That they decided to move downstream into development and they waited too long. Like in retrospect, they kind of look back and go, gosh, why did I wait eight years or whatever? (laughs) How was that experience for you? And help me understand how and why you chose to make the jump to LightSource.
1: Yeah, I think it's a tough, it's a tough call. You know, once you're in a big company or a big utility like PG&E, there's just so many opportunities to keep learning and keep getting engaged in really important industry leading initiatives. So I was there at PG&E for six years. I probably could have left earlier and probably should have left earlier, but I was still learning and I really enjoyed the new things that I was working on. So it was hard to let go. And then even personally, I had a little kid and uh, they had amazing daycare. And so it was hard to let go of some of the perks of the daycare. But I finally made the decision. Just one day I said, you know what? I need to try something new. And I really want to get on the side of, of the sell side and be a part of, you know, directly making a difference and growing globally renewable energy. And so I started to look. And the good news is just like one day I had a conversation with Catherine, uh, our mutual friend. And I was like, hey, you know what? I I'm looking to change roles and you know, hey, do you have any thoughts? Do you have anyone people that you recommend I speak to? And she said, you know what? I actually have a position. Come over and chat with us. And I ended up coming over and just had a great conversation with the team. There were really only about five people at the time. And so it was much more of a just get to know everybody. And it just felt really natural to make that move. And so, you know, it went well and I ended up getting an offer.
0: Yeah, you're glossing over a really big piece here, though, for those. <laughs> for those who would be making a career change that I think is seminal in why they were impressed with you. What happened the night before your supposedly interview, not interview?
1: (laughs) Well, uh, Kat sent me a note and said, hey, by the way, uh, can you pull together a business case on uh, what's the future of, um, you know, basically, if you were to start LightSource, what would you do and what would be your business development strategy? And I was like, oh, okay, I can do this. But, you know, the good news is I did, I did know what I was talking about from all of the work at pg and and even pulling from the stuff I learned in school, you know, I was able to estimate where do I think the right growth would be in the market and, you know, how do they start from being a small team with, you know, really no money uh, to creating a very large organization. And the funny thing is now that I lead business development, I feel like I'm still tapping that first business case that I created for that, for that interview.
0: Now that you are actively building a team, I find that a lot of folks focus on what questions are going to ask me, what do you find both you posed to that original small team and that folks pose to you that really give you a sense of like, this is the kind of person I want on my team. What questions should people be asking in these interviews that they're just not, or they aren't, aren't occurring to them? Like, what do you probe for to feel if this is the right choice for you, or if this company is going in the right direction?
1: Yeah, I think for me, ultimately, I can always find something interesting to work on when I'm at a company and it really comes down to cultural fit. And so the questions I was focused on were, you know, I'd ask him in ways I could ask technical questions or I could ask uh, questions directly about culture. But what I was really probing for was fit culturally. And so most of my questions were targeted around that. And I feel that that's what I usually talk to my own candidates about is, do they really want to work for a company that has a lot of ambiguity as a startup? Can they handle that? Can they be self-driven can they handle the fact that you ultimately have you know 15 balls in the air and you've got to keep them all up there so it's a little bit about Do they like that? Do they like the environment of a fast paced startup or does it feel a little overwhelming? You know, it's it's okay to feel overwhelmed and not go to a startup. Everybody seems to want to work at a startup, but startups can be really stressful and it's okay for people to say, you know what, that's just not a good fit for me. For me, it was super exciting. So the questions I asked and the the information they shared was just, you know, it was just invigorating. I was excited. I was excited to go to work, which I hadn't had in a really long time long time. And so that's how I made the call. It was, wait, why am I staying when I know I'm, you know, enjoying the work and doing well, but not excited. And, you know, that was what really made me decide to leave and, and join Lightsource PP because, you know, today it's still the same thing. Every day is fun and interesting because I'm just, you know, absorbing so much and learning so much and making like a difference directly on the bottom line.
0: I love it. Speaking of making a difference on the bottom line, one of the biggest areas of difference making that you can have in business development is a focus on customers, but it's not always readily apparent to those who haven't participated at the development side of the business, who are your customers? I think there's some anomalies, certainly of companies that have like all kinds of customers, but- I find that there is the traditional development shop, which you guys have some internally, but you mentioned that you're acquiring projects. So just sort of paint the picture here. A company that would be out solely developing projects would have a customer named Lightsource BP or Borrego Solar or NextEra, right? They're trying to sell their projects to you. They're not trying to sell the power. What we've been discussing is how your power market skills help market products at BP. So. Let's have a discussion around the idea of productizing the services that LightSource can offer, both bundled and unbundled, into the marketplace. And who are the customers that you're looking for with that kind of a product?
1: The short of it is that uh, LightSource BP's customers are mainly really large energy users, right? And so those could be utilities, and they can be utilities across the globe. Uh, for my team, we focus mainly on the U.S. We cut across the Americas, but most of our portfolio is in the U.S. And so we'll have customers that are utilities, either municipal or co-op utilities or investor-owned utilities, the IOU abbreviation that we were referencing earlier. And then we also have a growing base of of customers that are corporates and so those corporates can include BP actually BP is on the other side of transactions for us as a corporate um, you know through different types of transactions including hedges and PPAs and then we also have corporates you know traditional corporates that you can think about we just announced L3 Harris which is a corporate that has recently we've executed a contract with for a project in Texas And then uh, we've got quite a few other corporates that we engage with that'll soon to be, you know, more publicly referenced. But in general, I think corporates are really going to be driving the growth in the industry. You know, one interesting corporate that I'm really proud of is uh, Evres, which is a steel company. And so we are working with Excel, which is a utility in Colorado to really do the largest behind the meter project in Colorado. And I think I want to say across the U.S. And it's pretty cool because it's kind of a behind the meter project, we're actually, we have it in front of the meter, which means basically our project is interconnected to the transmission system through Excel. But then we're actually supplying that energy from our Bighorn Solar project directly to Evres, and Evres benefits from the clean energy that we're supplying. And therefore, they're providing clean steel makeup. I mean, that's just pretty impressive to me. And so that's a really cool corporate that you might not have expected to see or hear about in the industry that even steelmaking companies are are moving towards renewable energy. And they're doing it because of, um, you know, the benefits on the carbon side and and, and overall renewable energy. But fundamentally, they're also doing it because it's affordable. And so not only are they saving money on their energy bills, but they're also able to stay in Colorado and make a long-term commitment to jobs. They're committing to keeping a thousand jobs in Colorado in the city of Pueblo, which is, you know, an area that really can benefit from these local jobs because our solar is giving them affordable power. And so it's just this really great example of working with a, a corporate that's not, the typical you hear about Google's and Microsoft's and things like that. This is a company that's making it a decision because of an affordability you know, metric, and they're also cleaning up their, their energy profile.
0: You mentioned in a few previous conversations the idea of bundled versus unbundled services. What does that mean with, it, with regard to you know, solar development or power development more broadly?
1: It really depends on which uh, region of the world you're in, but in the U.S. and traditionally in um, integrated or regulated markets, power was really sold as a combination. It was really energy capacity and any other attributes, so environmental attributes as it relates to renewable energy, et cetera, ancillary services, other products. And so those are products. Those are energy products. Traditionally, those were all bundled into one rate, and that's the power purchase agreement You're executing that power purchase agreement on one price, you know, a dollar per megawatt hour price that you then multiply that by the amount of generation you have. And then that's how you get paid over some period of time as we're moving into a more complex power marketing world you can unbundle those products and you can sell them off in different ways so you can sell them off as contracted long term contracts or you could sell them merchant and so as the market is evolving particularly with renewable energy you're starting to see us unbundle those products and offer them to different types of customers so for instance you know you could hedge the energy for a product and so you're really only selling the energy side of of the renewable energy, this solar. And then the capacity could go to a centralized market or for a bilateral transaction with another customer. And then you can sell the RECs to another customer, the renewable energy uh, credits or the renewable energy part of the energy that you're producing with the solar. And so there's lots of different products like that. Additionally, you're introducing... Different types of products based on what the customers want. You know, originally the customers are fine with intermittent generation of solar. Now we're starting to introduce storage, which helps smooth out that solar profile and extends when it can be used so that it can tap in, uh, that the customer can tap into the solar energy and benefit for a longer period of time by using clean energy and so as you introduce storage you introduce even more products that that solar can really provide you know you start to get into the ancillary services markets when you tap pv plus storage and so there's lots of new products introduced from the base on bundling as well as the types of products that you can offer as you become a more complex technology what are
0: some key lessons or takeaways or perhaps who are some mentors in your life or career that have left a lasting legacy for you?
1: The ones that I think of off the top of my head are interesting because I've really only had one to two amazing mentors, but I've had a lot of opportunities to learn as well. And so I think, you know, the first one that I can think of was actually my my high school physics teacher. He decided that, you know, I was I was deciding of um, which AP classes I was going to take. And, and uh, as you probably have seen, I like uh, to do a lot. And so I was trying to take as many AP courses as I could. And I ended up asking, you know, I wanted to join AP physics. And he said to me, he said, you know what, with the type of person that you are. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, you know, you like to be social and and you like to, you know, go out and have fun with your friends. Are you sure that you can handle this? And that a reason I mentioned that one is was such an example of misunderstanding who I really was and what my capabilities were. And so I was like, yes, in fact, I do want to take this class and I will do very well. And then when we were t- when I was talking about what type of um, undergrad degree I wanted to get, again, the question was, oh, do you really want to be in chemical engineering? You know, that seems pretty challenging, especially when you're playing sports and you've got a social life. And it's like, how many people do you, how many do you ask that this is about your social life. And so again, I was like, no, I think I can handle chemical engineering. And I did that too. And, and so I think that you have to know that in a lot of times you're going to learn from people trying to say, I don't think you can do this. And when you know you can, you do it anyway. And so for me, those were my kind of first examples that weren't mentors. They were kind of people that tried to say, you know, they, they challenged what I thought I could do. And you have to believe in yourself and you have to make decisions that, you know what, you actually can do it on your own and, and, and just know that even if you fail, at least you've learned along the way and you should not give up. And then as I've grown in my career, I think the best mentor that I can give, his name is Todd Strauss. He works at PG&E. He was literally my favorite boss and still will be my favorite boss, probably until I don't have any more bosses because he believed in me and, you know, he really cared. He cared about every employee and and he still does, I'm sure. Um, and so for me, I learned so much about how to be a good manager from him, of you actually listen to what your employees really want and helping them get it, even if it isn't necessarily what's best for your small team. You know, if it's better for the company long run, you know, he would even say, it's okay for you to, to leave pg e because you'll eventually come back if you really want want to be here. And you'll make an even bigger impact to the company. And I loved that because it makes you want to go back because you're like, oh, you're right. I could learn so much and I could be an even better leader and an even better person if I do choose to come back. And he frankly helped me make the decision to leave and, and join LightSource. And I could not be you know, more proud and more thankful for what he did for me.
0: You also got an opportunity to work under one of the very few female CEOs of a public utility uh, i think it's perhaps interesting uh, if nothing else that Geisha Williams the CEO uh, is one of the first latin CEOs uh, i'm going to interview Paula Gold Williams of CPS who's one of the first african american CEOs i would love to hear if there are any nuggets of wisdom or just from observation that you as a as a as a female executive now use in your own career that you learned from Geisha
1: yeah, actually, Geisha's awesome. I, I had the pleasure of having her as a mentor when I was at PG e, and it was a great experience. She was becoming the CEO at the time and she was the president of of uh, PG E, and then she became the CEO of the broader uh, Pacific Gas and Electric, the publicly traded company. And through that process, I would meet with her regularly and, you know, get insight into the decision she was making and just see how a top leader at a very large company works. And I was just really lucky. And some of the things I learned were that you have to believe in yourself. Just as a woman, one thing is you have to be careful of how you speak about something. So avoid saying things such as, I don't know, or what do you think, or maybe it's this, you know, really being certain about your statements and not, not adding a question. Because sometimes people add a question to help people feel engaged, but sometimes when women add a question or create a, you know, say, Well, did you understand what that means? It immediately puts doubt in the prior sentence or the prior statement that you just had. And she was just so articulate and very good at making statements and people believing in them. The other thing I learned from her was that she had no problems leading very large teams of men, and they just loved her. And, you know, when I was in engineering, I led some large teams. In fact, when I lived in Malaysia, I think I was the first female leader that they'd ever had. And so I was used to that experience. And it was just really great to have somebody else that had been through that and that she was just really proud of it. And it wasn't even a big deal to her. And so for me, it was also exciting to not have it a big, big deal for me, but know that it's. Important to set the precedent to share with people that not everybody's used to that, and that it is something that you have to give back and share with people because it's different. You know, it's a very different experience for the people that work for you. And it's also different for you to lead a group of people that, you know, may not make decisions the same way you do or may not think about things the same way that you have.
0: I've heard that she was really good at reading an audience. Did that, is that something that you also picked up from her?
1: Oh, definitely. You know, she's one of those people that. She had a couple great stories and she knew when to pull them out that were just so, you know, and, and then she just popped one out of her head about her experience and she just knew it. She knew the audience and when to use one. You know, she was just really fluid. She didn't need a lot of talking points. And I really admire that. You know, sometimes you can really see leaders that are super scripted and they can't go off book. And when they do, they just they just start to bumble. But she just could take a question and run with it, even if it was a really tough question and give a very thoughtful and honest answer. And and I, you know, I tried to do the same. And I think I learned that from her and I learned it from probably my mother too. Um, But an important thing is that, you know, she was really, really good at that. And she had some great stories, you know, of her real life examples of tough situations that she had to deal with and and how she weathered the storm.
0: What simple advice might you have for someone who's currently exploring renewable energy and trying to figure out how, to position themselves, how to get into a role?
1: I think it depends on what point of your career you're in. If you're really uh, just starting out in the you know general business world, and so just graduating from school, I think the most important thing is to get into the industry and learn. You know, you can't go wrong with really any position if it's something that you enjoy the topic or the or the technology or the industry in general, because you're just going to learn so much.
0: Can I push back on that for a second? That I, while I agree with you, I wonder let's play this or that. <laughs> if someone has an opportunity to be thoughtful about how to get into the industry, would they be best served to go to a big company like a utility and learn about the power markets, or a small company like a local solar installer and learn about the customer?
1: I think you learn two very different things at those two organizations. I would actually say try to do both. But if you're trying to decide between the two, the benefits of going to the big company is you're going to get that breadth of experience. You're really going to learn the details behind why a decision was made, why the technology was selected, why the policy was designed the way it was. And therefore, I think you'll be more prepared to make the strategic decisions as you advance in your career. On the other hand, if you're a go getter and you jump right in right after undergrad, you might fumble along the way and you might, you know, you could run the risk of getting stuck in a position where you have limited knowledge to advance. But you can also jump in and if you have good mentors, they can help you grow. So I see the benefit of going to somewhere where there is knowledge. That's what I did. I learned from it. On the other hand, I think there are the unique few that can really excel without that deep knowledge in their background, but you also have to do the work. So if you're in that world, then what you're going to have to do is go to conferences and take outside seminars and have mentors so that you're learning the industry and you're making decisions based on the the knowledge and the history of of the energy industry. Without, you know, without that, you're not really going to be able to truly grow in the industry.
0: Yeah, I think it's sage advice. And I do agree with you that if you are more personal development minded and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you may be well served to be at that small, I'll say smaller sized company. But in the experience that I've gleaned here through the many voices of Suncast, I think that it's really difficult to replace being in your 20s. In a big organization where you have a 30,000 foot view on an entire industry and can ask good questions, even as that like bootstrap, go-getter, personal development, personality, ask really good questions and thoughtfully surround yourself with people who have done it for decades Rather than what you all too often find in the startup world is one or two people who've done it for decades. And the rest of the people are all trying to sort of leech on and and leverage that experience. (laughs) And there just isn't enough to go around. It's a harder road to go. That said, you know, some people just don't thrive in a corporate environment and they are kind of made for a startup. In all cases, I think that college, if that's where you uh, are jumping out from, is a great incubator to try things, right? Get an internship at a big company, get an internship at a small company. If you're in that mid-career and you've found yourself stifled at a startup-type company, is it too late to jump to a corporate and gain the experience that you've missed?
1: My answer is no, since that was me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Fantastic. So here at Suncast, as I, I believe you're familiar, we believe that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. I'd love to know, therefore, what books have you recommended or gifted the most and why?
1: So I am a pretty busy person. So I'll be honest, Um, I try to mix things up with, I'm a voracious reader. I mean, I think compared to my sister who is one of the most incredible readers I've ever met, um, I wouldn't be considered voracious, but I'd say on average, I read quite a bit. Um, I mix things up. I mix things up on the fiction side because I think it's a good relief. Um, you know, we have pretty stressful jobs and it's important to find, you know, relief in, in fiction. So I just read a really good book called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. And that wasn't just a really good opportunity to learn about culture. And it's about these twins that, you know, basically split off and one leads a very different life than the other. I don't want to give away too much, but it's just this incredible um, example. It's historical fiction. And you just see how society is, you know, back in the 50s through the 80s. And it's just, you know, it's just a really incredible time to read something like this. And so I recommend The Vanishing Half. I also, on the nonfiction side, I try to read things that help me understand how to manage my career, as well as to manage just my life and stress in general. Recently, and I do a lot of listening to books, so I run, and when I run, I listen to audiobooks. And so it's sometimes fun to read, to listen to the nonfiction, because uh, you can kind of break it up into bite sizes and not feel so overwhelmed. You know, the book Salt is really good. Uh, That's just in general. I recommend that just to learn about the history in general. But the one that I was reading lately is called Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. And that one's huge because it really makes you step back and realize how important even things like Elementary school and how teachers uh, respond to students, and are they shaming them or are they teaching them that it's important to be vulnerable and take risks? You know, I listen to my son who's six years old. I listen to him every day in school now because he's homeschooled or not homeschooled, he's at home remote learning during the pandemic. And I listen to his teacher and I see, you know, do they take risks and they say it wrong, like tree, he spelled it D R E E, and she's like, no you know and she kind of shamed him for it and i said now next time he's not going to raise his hand and so you know i think for me it makes me think back of a meeting and saying did that person try and fail but they tried well now i'm not going to yell at them for being wrong i'm going to talk to them about what did they learn from being wrong and how can they you know in, incorporate that learning in next time that they do something so you know it's about that one is an incredible book i recommend that to anybody
0: sorry is salt the by mark kurlansky yeah. yeah yeah same guy that wrote paper.
1: yes, yeah, okay. and there's um the last book that I would say that I that I've actually really enjoyed this summer with my son is actually the Harry Potter series. you know, I think that when you're working with children, or when you're you know you ha- you're raising children, and especially in this crazy COVID environment, it's been really tough to talk about challenging you know stressors for children and stressors just in life in general. And I've found that there's a lot of examples in that book that help explain challenging things to kids that I don't think I would have been able to do on my own.
0: Well, Emily, I enjoy all of these conversations with you, and I'm sure that others are going to want to find ways to engage with you. Is there an appropriate place or way to do that? Are you on LinkedIn or Twitter? How can we help folks find you?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, definitely write me. I'm also on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and then I I guess you can also look for Lightsource BP on the website. There's definitely lots of information of LightsourceBP.com. Um, Lightsource BP is also on Twitter and Instagram and uh, LinkedIn.
0: What's your Twitter handle?
1: Uh, it's EJW411. Okay. <laughs> you know, just very memorable. <laughs> That's a
0: great one. Six letters. I uh, scored that yeah. one early.
1: Been on a long time.
0: Well, let's end today, Emily, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball?
1: So... We talked a bit about the different product offerings earlier. And so I'd say in the near term, I expect to continue to see things that are gonna really push the boundaries of how renewables are going to engage in the traditional power markets. And so I think we'll see lots of different opportunities there. But for me, something that I'm really keeping track of, which we haven't talked a bit a bunch at all really about the partnership between LightSource and BP. But what I'm really excited about is the renewable energy industry driving change beyond the electricity industry into, you know, heavy fuels and things like that. And so what I'm seeing is the, you know, what do I see in the crystal ball is that you're going to see big companies like BP making big investments in renewable energy that drive changes beyond electricity. They do things like green hydrogen. You know, Lightsource BP is working on a pilot with BP right now on a green hydrogen facility in Australia where our solar is going to supply clean energy which which is why it's called green hydrogen for the hydrolysis process. And so I think that's just fundamentally really cool because you can then use that hydrogen as a fuel for heavy industry or it could be a feedstock for something else and that's really moving beyond the electricity industry into some really dirty technologies. And so if we loop back all the way to what I really cared about fundamentally I made the decision to join the you know the the revolution of renewable energy industry to drive change and address climate change. And this is the moment in which we can actually start to see this happen. So I'm really excited about green hydrogen. I'm really excited about electrification in general and overall big corporates that have big balance sheets making decisions that's going to move renewable energy beyond the uh, niche industry that it is into the forefront of the electricity and the general industry.
0: I love it so much. What a vision for us to hold and uh, be captivated by. And it's so cool to be able to have someone on the show who can speak to what's happening at a giant organization like BP with regard to their focus and massive commitment, which you didn't touch on much today, uh, to renewables over the next 10, 15, 20 years. Emily Wangerman is vice president of business development for LightSource BP, one of the premier Solar development and storage and energy development companies here in North America and increasingly around the world. Emily, it's so great to have you here on Suncast.
1: Thanks so much, Nico. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Ooh, all right, Solar Warrior. Well, that was a wild ride there with Emily. I feel like we got to cover such a broad gamut, and I am sure that you're feeling saturated with all the value and knowledge that was dripping from the conversation that Emily and I engaged in today. I would love it if you would hit Emily up on, uh, on Twitter. Let's test whether or not she's actually present there, EJW411, you can find me obviously at Nico Mayo and I-C-O-M-E-O. And hey, if you are eager, like Emily and I, to keep learning, well then you, my fellow Philomath, can find all the resources and highlights from this and every discussion, those books that we just recommended, along with social media links and so much more over at Mysuncast.com. You can click through to the episodes and check out all the show notes. And hey, while you're there, take a couple more minutes out of your precious time, which we are so grateful for, and give us feedback in our listener survey. It helps me know how I can serve you better. Please and thank you. And of course, next week we have our Tactical Tuesday and another long form episode like this one on Thursday that I hope you'll tune in for. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.